Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host, Liv, and I'm very excited to have you here and I hope you enjoy today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about the murder of Jill Dando, a TV presenter and journalist from Fulham, southwest London, who was fatally shot outside her own home, which prompted the biggest murder inquiry conducted by the Metropolitan Police and the country's largest criminal investigation since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. Before we get into today's case, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode involves mention of stalking but also descriptions of a crime scene, so if this is something that you aren't comfortable listening to then please feel free to click out of this podcast. And today it's going to be such a big case and I might even have to do a part two, I'm not sure yet so we're just going to have to see how it goes. So let's begin. This is the murder of Jill Dando. Jill Wendy Dando was born on the 9th of November 1961 at Ashcombe House Maternity Home in Somerset to her parents Jack Dando and Winifred Mary Jean Hockey. Baby Jill was a little sister to Nigel, who was nine years older than her, and she completed the Dando family. However, when she was only three years old, doctors at Western General Hospital discovered she had a hole in her heart and a blocked pulmonary artery. So on the 12th of January 1965, Jill had a major eight-hour surgery to repair this heart defect. Growing up, Jill was a star pupil in school and was praised by many of her teachers and when she was just 11 years old, Jill moved to Wall School before attending Broad Oak Sixth Form where she was head girl and passed all of her A-levels. And following on from this, when Jill finally left school, she and her childhood friend Chris Wilshire decided on a career in journalism. At just 18 years old, she approached Mercury editor John Bailey for a job and was offered a job a month later, in 1979, as one of the paper's first ever female reporters. Jill began her charity work by volunteering for Talking for the Blind, but when she began helping out at Western General Hospital's Sunshine Radio, her future career in broadcasting became clear. She started making news broadcasts on the hospital station at the age of 19, along with other Mercury reporters. And when producers noticed her talent, she was asked to do more and became a regular presenter. In 1985, Jill spotted an advert for an assistant at the BBC Radio Devon, and with help from the Sunshine Radio workers, she got the job and worked as a breakfast programmed reporter and presenter. In 1987, Jill decided to move to ITV's West Country company TSW before joining BBC's Southwest new flagship programme called Spotlight, which was based down in Plymouth. However, at the age of 26, the BBC executives convinced her to leave the West Country and move to London to join the breakfast news programme in the spring of 1988, where a year later she became involved with her boss, Bob Wheaton, who she had a relationship with for six and a half years. And over this time, Jill began to attract attention with her immaculate live coverage of the coup in the Soviet Union. In 1995, Jill came out of her usual news presenting and took a role for the BBC's Crime Watch to join Nick Ross every month in the hunt for criminals. 
After Jill's relationship with Bob Wheaton ended in 1997 due to work pressures, she met a gynaecologist named Dr. Alan Farthing, who she became engaged to on the 31st of January 1999, and they were set to be married on the 25th of September. And that's just a day after my birthday, may I add. So on the 26th of April 1999, 37-year-old Jill left Alan Farthing's home in Chiswick and after running a few errands, returned to her home on Gowan Avenue in Fulham at around 11.30am. She parked her car outside, walked up to her front door with her keys still in her hand. At 11.45, just 15 minutes after Jill arrived home, a woman named Highland Dobby was working from home that day and needed to nip to a shop to get some paperwork copied. So she started walking down Gowan Avenue and Helen was a friend of Jill's and she was surprised to see that her car was parked outside her house, seeing as though Jill was now living with her fiancé. But Helen thought she might just be able to see Jill and have a quick catch up, so she started to approach the front garden when she comes across a terrifying and gruesome scene. 37 year old Jill Dando was slumped over her own doorstep. Helen later described this exact scene to the mirror, quoting, Her legs were stretched out and awkwardly placed. Her hand with her engagement ring was stretched out and the hand was blue. That beautiful engagement ring on that very dead hand. That ring was so full of her hopes and dreams and it was all taken from her. It was absolutely clear to Helen that Jill was already dead. Her body lay in a pool of her own blood which spread across the front of her doorstep. And in total shock, Helen decided not to open the gate as she was aware that it could contaminate a very obvious crime scene. So instead, she called 999 and she told the operator that she had found her friend dead. And she said, she doesn't look as though she's breathing. She's got blood coming from her nose and her arms are blue. Before discreetly telling the operator that it was in fact Jill Dando. Helen did in fact mention that she thought Jill had been stabbed due to how much blood she could see. You know, she never even thought that she could have been shot. You know, it's not very common in England and usually only used in, you know, like underground crimes and stuff like that. Helen saw another neighbour further down the street, so she ran to get her help because she didn't want to be alone. And honestly, I don't blame her. I mean, she'd innocently gone to see a friend that she hadn't seen in a while and she'd stumbled across, well, this. So she rushed this neighbour up to the crime scene who, just like Helen, was absolutely mortified and instantly ran off, but it turns out she'd run off to another neighbour's house who was a doctor in hopes that they could still save Jill. Paramedics finally get to the scene where they attempted to resuscitate the TV star and a horrified Helen just watched over Jill's body praying that she could be saved. She watches Jill's arms as they start to change colour, thinking that they might be getting somewhere, but unfortunately, this was just due to blood circulation caused by the chest compressions. As hard as they tried to save Jill's life, it was to no effect, and just 14 minutes before she was found by Helen, somebody had walked up behind her and shot her in the head on her own front doorstep. Unfortunately, any forensic evidence that might have been left at the scene would have now been contaminated after paramedics rushed through the gate to try and save her, and minutes later followed by police. And, you know, I would have thought they'd have known better, you know, especially the police. 
But, you know, anyway, the police had 50 search officers going up and down the street, searching for anything that they could find. They were looking in drains and even looking down the banks of the river that was close by to Jill's house. And not too long after, the coroner did in fact confirm that the cause of death was a close-range gunshot to the left temple, and the bullet came out the other side. Whilst examining the crime scene, it seemed that by the way Jill was found lying, it seemed as though the killer had snuck up behind her, grabbed her and forced her to the floor, possibly on her knees before he then fatally shot her. Detectives did manage to recover the bullet from the scene, which showed that the murder weapon was a 9mm pistol. After taking the cartridge and doing some analysis on it, it showed that it was probably tampered with prior to shooting. And when I say tampered, I mean that it's possible it had been modified so it had a lower charge, which therefore it makes it quieter when it's shot. This evidence showed that whoever this killer was knew what they were doing and had possibly done this before. Especially as they would have known that placing the gun right up against her temple would have also dampened the sound. And somehow whoever did it was quick and quiet and clean enough to get out of there within a matter of minutes or possibly even seconds. But the real question on everyone's mind was, well, why? I mean, why was this innocent woman shot on her own doorstep? What was the motive? I mean, her engagement ring was still on, so it wasn't a robbery, and it really couldn't have been a kidnapping because there was no force seen anywhere. Realistically, there's no reason why Jill was a target for this shooting. She was the nation's sweetheart, everyone loved her, and it became clear very quickly that this was a targeted and very deliberate attack. The whole nation was shocked to hear about this tragic news, and her Crime Watch co-presenter, Nick Ross, prepared to host the show without her for the first time in years. And once the show went on air, lead investigator DCI Hamish Campbell brought in the timeline of events that they'd managed to put together so far. This timeline began about an hour and a half before the murders took place. The local postman, who was on Gowan Avenue at around 10.05am, was the first person to spot something that looked suspicious, and he said, quote, I was delivering mail along the odd numbers until I reached 29. I took a couple of paces down the front garden path, and just before I reached the front gate, I saw a man standing in the road looking directly at number 29. It was like he thought someone was going to receive the mail, end quote. And I'll just add, 29 was in fact the number of Jill's house. And one thing, again, that I will say because I find it, well, interesting, is that all of the witnesses describe the same person or the same two men working together on that day. And the most common description of the man was that he was average height, had dark hair, and was wearing a dark suit. So next on the timeline is a traffic officer, who just a few minutes after the postman saw the same shady man. She went to put a ticket on an illegally parked Range Rover on the street running perpendicular to Jill's street. And as she was typing in the vehicle's details, a man knocked on the windshield from inside the car and she didn't even notice that there was anyone sitting there. Another witness reported being tailgated by the same car just a few minutes later, 
This witness spotted a man in a suit looking up and down the street as she turned into Gowan Avenue, and near the end of the street she noticed the blue Range Rover that was driving right up behind her with what looked like two men inside. Then at around 10.40am, a window cleaner notices an individual lingering in front of Jill's house while speaking on his mobile phone. It's known that this man was very similarly dressed to the person other witnesses saw, but this one had blonde hair. But since Jill's house was up for sale, the window cleaner just assumed that, you know, it was an estate agent or someone was interested in buying the house. There is two more sightings 20 minutes later of the same blue Range Rover at the end of the street. A witness passed a dark-haired man standing in between some cars, and at the same time, a well-suited man wearing oversized glasses was spotted, acting nervous at the end of the road. So it's already been established that within seconds of Jill leaving her car and going to her front door that the murder was complete, without anybody on the street realising what was even happening. We know the gunshot was muted, so that might not have been heard, but what about Jill? The next door neighbour, Richard Hughes, actually heard Jill cry out, but he said it didn't sound like a cry for help, he said it sounded as if she just recognised someone that she knew, or like she was surprised by something. He went to his window and spotted a man, and this could potentially be the same man who had been spotted that same morning. He said that this mystery man then walked off down the street in a hurry. And this was also seen by one other neighbour who lived across the street and he said that the man swiftly broke into a run down the street. It's also known that this same man was spotted more by witnesses after running down the street. The first witness claims that he nearly knocked him over with his car whilst the other saw him talking on the phone before running out in front of a van. And now I'm not entirely sure if these two incidences are the same or separate events. He is then said to have disappeared into Bishop's Park where several witnesses came forward and reported seeing a man matching this description of the main suspect. They all said that he was talking on the phone and he seems to be agitated about something, but he was very careful to lower his voice when anybody went near him. Eventually, this man emerged from the park and made his way up to the bus stop on Fulham Palace Road where a witness who was already waiting at the bus stop took note that this man was really sweating. I mean, sweating so much that his shirt collar was absolutely soaked. And the witness at the bus stop just assumed, for some reason, that he was a plainclothes police officer. And since he was a lot closer than any of the other witnesses, he was able to tell the police more details about this man's appearance. He said that this guy was about 5 foot 9, 5 foot 10, and he had a, quote, foreign nose and an indent as if he usually wore glasses. The man got onto a bus, sat down and was seen talking on the phone and just a few minutes after this was when Helen Dobby discovered Jill's body. After a while the man gets off the bus at Putney Bridge Station at 11.55am and after that just nothing. There's no more CCTV, no more witness reports, he just vanished. And this was the extent of the information that was found in those early days. And although there were many witnesses, there weren't any real leads. So how were the police going to find out what happened to Jill?
Oh, okay. So I know that was a lot of information to take in and it's only going to get more complicated. So just stay with me and I will try and explain everything the best that I can. But I mean, what do you think? I mean, it definitely sounds like there was someone watching and waiting for Jill and perhaps wasn't working alone. And at the time there was so much information. I just don't think anybody knew where to start. But the team at Crime Watch thought that the police were focusing their efforts on all the wrong things. For example, the police put a huge significance on the vehicle, which in turn ended up bombarding tip lines with reports of Range Rovers. I mean, it's not a hugely uncommon car, but it seemed to kind of be a sort of find a Range Rover, find the killer. But in actual fact, just because it had been seen didn't really prove, well, anything. I mean, there was no concrete evidence. And to top all of this off, police really pushed the story that Jill was killed as retaliation for her work on the show. Speculation that some gangster got put behind bars after she led an appeal for tips of their crime or something. And this, well, the Crime Watch team thought it was unlikely, however for the media, it made a good story. Nick stated, quote, Already it was clear that this had such big publicity. The risk was they would get swamped with literally thousands of lines of inquiry, which is exactly what happened. They finished up with over 7,000 lines of inquiry, end quote. And from that 7,000 calls, only 10 of them were actual witnesses. From the start, some high-ranking police officers were convinced that some criminal had hired an assassin to murder Jill in retaliation for their arrest. However, if this was the case, then surely there would be more significant people on their kill list? Like, I don't know, prosecutors, judges, witnesses, you know, like Jill surely wouldn't be at the top of that list. But if not this, then perhaps something more personal. Maybe somebody had a grudge with Jill, so the police started to gather alibis from everybody in both her personal and professional life, but nobody became suspects. No ongoing grudges or feuds, and there was no hint that she owed anybody money, which normally is a huge motive for murder. So, if it was none of these people, then could it have been someone totally random? Somebody absolutely desperate to be wanted by Jill? Jill's brother Nigel mentioned to the police that she was worried about some guy pestering her a few days before the murder. So it's really not that far-fetched, but this guy, after the police had found him, had a solid alibi, so he was ruled out. And in fact, there were 140 people, yep, 140 people, identified as being obsessed with Jill. But could one of them have been that obsessed to kill Jill? Maybe upset that Jill was getting married? However, I'm not sure about it. I mean, the actual act was carried out so quickly and so clean. I mean, surely this could not have been done by some random guy. Surely, he just couldn't. Oh well, to me anyways, if this killer really was infatuated with a Jill, then surely he'd want to take his time with it or at least look her in the face and talk to her. And he probably, I mean, this is just my opinion, but he'd probably take something personal from her like her engagement ring. But in the end, every single 140 of them people were found and they all had alibis, which just confuses me even more. So with all 140 of her stalkers, 
family, friends and co-workers, etc. So after they'd been taken out of the question, the police had another idea. Maybe this was just a random act of violence. Her own brother, in fact, thinks that this could be it. He said, quote, I believe there was no reason. It was just an act of random brutality and Jill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. End quote. And the police thought that maybe someone had followed Jill. However, this was short-lived. The police had teams of officers that meticulously went through CCTV footage from the morning before she was murdered and there was nothing. Her brother Nigel told Lorraine Kelly, quote, The police carried out exhaustive check of CCTV as it existed then. They plotted Jill's journey. They were able to monitor thousands of phone calls being made in the area at the time. And there was nothing that jumped out on that day. End quote. However, there are some holes in this theory. For one, 9mm pistols aren't exactly common, so say the man lingering across the road that morning did kill Jill, then well, did he just so happen to have a gun on him? Because to me, if he had a gun on him, it would have meant that he'd prepared and absolutely intended to kill her. And don't quote me on this, but usually random acts of violence, especially or even specifically in the UK, are more likely to be done with a knife now. Oh, and uh, another fact, we know the gun was modified. Again, points to the fact that this was planned. So, who's left and what are the police thinking now? So after researching some different theories online, I've come across one. Um, and it's that the entire country of Serbia is to blame for the murder of the BBC presenter. So here's what I found, and I mean, just stay with me on this one, it gets a bit confusing, but I'm going to try and explain it as best that I can. So back in April 1999, the Kosovo War was continuing, and since March 24th, NATO air forces had been launching strikes against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in retaliation for the ethnic cleansing of Albanians. An ethnic cleansing that Jill Dando personally led appeals against while she was campaigning for humanitarian aid. In fact, just three days before the murder, a British bomber involved in the project struck a broadcasting station in Belgrade in which 16 civilian workers died inside. And according to Jill's mother, one of these victims was basically the Yugoslav equivalent of Jill Dando. So say the Serbs were keen to strike back at the UK, it is possible that they might have chosen Jill as a target. Her sister Judith said, quote, in fact, it might have been tit-for-tat reprisal. I can understand this might be the case, particularly since the way Jill was killed, it makes me think it's related to something bigger than the actual fact, end quote. Actually, threats did come into the BBC in the days leading up to her murder, which then increased security around the Director General Sir John Burt. So thinking he could have been the prime target and because of this security, maybe Jill was plan B? However, this theory hasn't really been taken seriously by the police, even though it was known that a Serbian hitman was in London at the time, but he wasn't really looked into at the time. The threats never even stopped after Jill's murder. Calls were still being made to the BBC by a few different men with heavy Eastern European accents, which were saying they were responsible for a few different Bosnian Serb nationalist groups. 
Conservative MP Patrick Mercer commented about a few similar tactics of Yugoslavian hit squads. He'd fought in Bosnia whilst he was in the army, and he said, quote, It had all the trademarks of a convert forces. The killer even used specifically tailored ammunition, which was a Serbian assassination trademark, and something I saw when I was over there. End quote. It's known that these particular hitmen employed by the Yugoslavian communists were known to work in pairs. So, the actual shooter, and I guess a lookout, which if you think about it, does add up with all the witness sightings earlier in this case. And get this, bit of a plot twist, but a dissident Serbian journalist was actually found dead on his doorstep in Belgrade just 15 days earlier in a very, very similar way to Jill. And this has made a lot of people believe that there's absolutely a link between them. But something I just cannot get my head around is if this murder was done by a professional hitman, then surely they'd have had their escape route down to a T. I mean, by looking at witness reports and if we are assuming that these men were the hitmen, then it seems a bit, well, not very well thought out. I can hardly imagine that a professional hitman jumping onto a random bus after an assassination. But who knows? I mean, nobody really. You'll have to let me know what you think about that one. So, it's been a long one, and if you think about each point, on the surface they do seem like reasonable theories, even though they all have their flaws, and the police were still finding no solid leads and the case was getting colder. However, things were about to take a turn when police start to turn their attention onto one man in particular who seemed to have holes in his alibi. So now it's the early 2000s and the police still had no solid leads in Jill's murder, so they started to think with fresh minds. They now extended their search from Jill's close and immediate friends, family and acquaintances and started to look for any other dangerous people in the surrounding area. They were thinking that maybe there was an individual struggling with mental problems who killed Jill, an act of opportunism. Barry George was born on April 15, 1960, in London, and was most prominently known for approaching women in Fulham and the surrounding areas. And in fact, he already held convictions for a variety of different sexual harassment and antisocial crimes. He was known as, quote, the local nutter, but probably more dangerous than the usual type. For example, in 1983, he was actually arrested while hiding in the bushes outside of Kensington Palace waiting to see Princess Diana. Which, you know, a bit strange, but it turns more scary when you find out he'd actually brought along some rope, a knife and a belt with him. And he was also wearing combat gear. But surprisingly, he didn't even face any charges for this. That's just absolutely mad. Barry was also known to be quite, well eccentric and I mean he used to claim that he was the cousin of Freddie Mercury and even lied about working in the SAS. Barry also worked briefly with the BBC as a messenger and it's been said that after he was let go from the job he still came into the building to collect a copy of the staff newsletter and I'm not really sure why but I mean whatever floats your boat you know. So from this it's possible that Barry had his sights set on Jill also, her house was only like 10 minutes walk from his, so it's definitely a possibility that he was aware of where she lives. Further investigations revealed more interesting information. 
Police looked back at records from a witness called Elaine Hutton of Hammersmith and Fulham Action for Disability Advice Centre, whose office is just a five-minute walk from the end of Gowen Avenue. And she claimed that Barry had arrived at the centre about half an hour after Jill's murder. And she said that she overheard a conversation between him and a welfare rights officer, Susan Bicknell, and said, quote, He was quite agitated. It was Susan's first day at work and I was monitoring the situation quite closely because I was aware I might have to step in and help. He came in with a carrier bag full of papers and he was dissatisfied about services from a medical profession he had received. Susan was trying to stay calm and stay focused on the fact that she couldn't deal with him on that day and he needed to make an appointment, end quote. And 15 minutes later, Barry George left and made an appointment, but he failed to show up the next day. Elaine Hutton then said he came back two days later again seeming very wound up and he was demanding to know exactly what time he had been there on that Monday morning. She said she wasn't too sure what the time was and he wasn't happy with that so she eventually said about 11 o'clock which he then made clear he wasn't happy with that estimate. Barry insisted he wanted to know the time of his visit so he could give the information to his solicitor. Hutton went on to say, quote, he said he had been intimidated by the police before and falsely accused, end quote. So, could this be Barry George's attempt at trying to construct an alibi? Due to this information on Barry George, the police decided to follow him, watching his every move, and in the three weeks they did this, they observed him approaching 38 different women on the street. Now, we don't know the context of these conversations. I mean, he could have just been trying to be friendly. Barry actually had severe social problems, which could have been linked to Asperger's, so it could have been that he just really struggled reading certain interactions. However, this was reason enough for the police to search his home, and to their surprise, or maybe not, they found 100 rolls of undeveloped photographic film, which included... 2,248 pictures of women, all taken by Barry without their consent or knowledge. And that just gave me shivers. So yeah, I really doubt he was just trying to be friendly, so just ignore what I said there. So from this, it's very clear that Barry had a habit of following women around, whether they were famous or not, and it was clear that he just loved to take photographs for his collection, I guess. But after the police trowel through the photos, there was actually no evidence or photographs of Jill. However, another thing to mention about Barry is the fact that he had told the police that he was so anti-gun, etc. But they found that he collected military magazines, he owned a list of firearms and other related weapon things, and also a photograph surfaced of Barry himself wearing a gas mask and holding a starter pistol, which wait for it. The police said it could have been modified to fire live ammunition, just like they had suspected happened in Jill's murder. But was there any real evidence? Well, yeah, there was. They found a teeny tiny speck of gunpowder. In fact, it was half a thousandth of an inch to be exact, which was found in the inside of his jacket pocket. So following witness statements made at the time of the murder, 
police decided to do an ID parade on a laptop which included a whole host of different people, from other suspects to totally innocent people. The neighbour who lived next to Jill and the man who lived opposite, who both saw a man leave Jill's front gate, were asked to look at this parade and see if they spotted the man they saw. However, neither of them picked Barry. In fact, they both picked totally different people. So after more forensic research, a single fibre was found at the crime scene, and this was believed to be from the trousers of Barry. And the police decided this was enough to make an arrest on Barry, and so on the 25th of May, he was arrested and formally charged with the murder of Jill Dando. And it's no surprise that the people were still so sympathetic for Jill, and there was still an outpour of grief, and, you know, finally someone had been arrested for her murder. So no matter who this person was, he was obviously going to be hated by the whole nation. One year later, the trial began at the Old Bailey, where many controversial cases had taken place. The infamous Cray twins, the Yorkshire Ripper, just to name a few. So this obviously put a lot of pressure on the trial, not to mention the court was a full house. During the trial itself, Barry sat alongside a psychologist to help cope with the traumatic trial. And during the trial, Barry pleaded not guilty. And his defence painted a very different picture about Barry. His defence put Barry as a vulnerable guy who was just living close by and was relatively well known as the local nutter. A man with an alibi, and honestly just a man who really wasn't capable of doing this sort of crime. However, the prosecution solely centred their case on forensics, especially with the gunpowder residue that was found in his coat pocket, and obviously the fibre that they found. However, one expert claimed that this evidence really didn't add up, forensically. So this expert claimed that the fibre they had found could have been from anyone, you know, contamination. One single particle could have been airborne, and like I said, it could have been from literally anybody. And as for the gunpowder, there was no actual other signs of gunpowder found anywhere in Barry's flat. So if he had been adapting the weapon, then where would he have done it? Because there's certainly no evidence of it being done in his own home. So the prosecution hung on to this smallest thread of evidence, this one particle, and it seemed to be going nowhere. The defence, on the other hand, they were going strong, even though majority of what they were using to defend Barry was circumstantial. But... It doesn't, it doesn't really work in court usually, but in this case, the judge said that it was possible to convict on this circumstance, even without a motive. The jury deliberated for five days, and this jury was made up of six women and five men, and eventually, on the 2nd of July, they all found him guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison. And this left a lot of people in shock. I mean, it's quite clear that Barry was a mentally ill man. And even though he was absolutely infatuated and fascinated regularly about women, could he really be that capable of killing an innocent woman? So what went wrong with this case? I mean, I think it was a combination of putting the focus on someone who looked off, which went along with publicity, not to mention the pressure on the jury to actually get a conviction and the fact that he lived in this particular area. And also, how much focus the prosecution put on this tiny particle evidence. 
So now, Barry has always claimed his innocence and after a while, people actually started to get behind him and started to have a new look into this case. Something obviously wasn't quite right. There was something missing and there's absolutely been a miscarriage of justice in their eyes. An appeal began, a campaign that was built up to try and free Barry from life in prison. At this point, Barry had been in jail for eight years already but new forensic evidence had surfaced which argued that if the evidence found in his pocket had been found a day later then yeah, theoretically it could be possible, but after a long period of time it couldn't have been used due to contamination. The clothing that Jill had been wearing that day had been at the scene for quite a while, meaning the fibre could have been from anybody. Don't forget, I mean, the paramedics and the police rushed over to Jill which would have completely contaminated that crime scene. The Court of Appeal set a date for retrial and with Barry and his defence and his team's persistence and the self-belief he was finally cleared of this murder charge. But the case had now come full circle with still no explanation, still no solid evidence. We are left with the same question we started with. Who killed Jill Dando? And congratulations, <laughs> that concludes today's episode and well done if you've stayed to the end of this case. I know it's been a confusing one. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed and I hope to have you back for another Primed for Crime episode. However, in the meantime, if you are still craving for more true crime cases, you can head over to my Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. So please be vigilant, please stay safe and I will see you very soon. See you later.